This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the AnvaCast, everyone. This week, I'm pleased to introduce a new partner and stakeholder in the Anva community that we've not had on the podcast before, the Commercial Vehicle Training Alliance, CVTA. Uh, I'm pleased to be welcomed with the uh, Executive Director, Andrew Polyakov, and one of his board members, Jeff Burkhart, who's the Senior Director of Operations for Commercial Driver Training at Ancora Education. That's a lot. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. I appreciate it. And I, will, you, I will and I will note quickly, we are the Commercial Vehicle Training Association. Association. Yes, I said yeah. alliance. Yes, association. You never know the, that A in those acronyms always throw, throw me off sometimes. I appreciate that that correction, Andrew. So, uh, so welcome. You are an association for commercial vehicle training schools, the largest association of its kind. Tell me a little bit more about your mem- members, Andrew. Absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, we're, we're the largest association of what we say professional truck driver training programs. Um, been in existence for 27 years. The membership is across 46 states. Uh, with uh, We have 95 member schools with about almost 400 locations, and our members train over 100,000 new entry-level drivers each year. And it's the members are strictly the training schools, or do you have any? We know a lot of carriers run their own education and training programs. Do you have any crossover in that space? Absolutely. So there, as I mentioned, there are almost a hundred uh, member schools, and it, additionally, we have motor carriers that are committed to this um, safety-focused, high-quality training. Some of them, indeed, run their own schools as well. And then we have associate members that participate in that entire sort of ecosystem around. Uh, this type of uh, safety-focused training. Give me an example of what an associate member might be that our listeners may not realize, you know, are the types of entities that, like you say, work in this ecosystem, but aren't strictly those that are delivering the education and training. Sure. Folks that are interested in providing compliance services around things like entry-level driver training compliance, uh, uh, could be a variety of things, um, uh, having assisting with getting new uh, folks interested in, in becoming truck drivers, et cetera. So really a lot of the different um, uh, things exist in that space. Financing for schools, many uh, things. Gotcha. So you've mentioned it a couple of times, and obviously it's been, we've worked in and around each other for a long time. We've had members of AMVA that regularly come to your events and help provide briefings and information. But I think for the last, I don't know, I guess five to eight years, all of a sudden, one of the big areas of overlap is what you've mentioned a couple of times, which is entry-level driver training. And now, of course, the implementation of, of the rule. Um, Jeff, I know this is an area where you've been particularly active with the association on the ELDT task force. Um, if one of you could give me your general overview of from your perspective the the your view of the rule um in terms of its value and the importance in this ecosystem 
I'm happy to take that one unless, unless you want to, Jeff. Um, you know, this is absolutely critical for safety. Uh, it's, it's rare when uh, a federal agency actually quantifies the safety benefits of um, any particular program. And in this case, we're talking about this national minimum standards for truck driving training. Okay, so it's uh, there's a theory portion, there's a behind the wheel portion, there's a, um, a, a road and range that are both part of this behind the wheel portion, and essentially 30 subjects that all folks who are gonna be um, become new truck drivers have to take. But when we talk about safety and the sort of quantification of these safety benefits, it's no small thing to say that FMCSA has indicated that over 10 years, there'll be 115 lives uh, saved by the introduction of these new standards. Uh, I believe it's 2,500 personal injuries avoided and uh, about 7,000 property damage crashes avoided. So the effect in, in terms of safety cannot be overstated, and it really is something quite special. And that's why we're so committed to it. And when they came out with the final rule and it had those quantifiable requirements, how did it change or did it change how your schools approached delivering curriculum and working with, with students? Was it a major shift? Was it already reflective in what you were providing? I'm not sure folks that are outside the world may appreciate how much of an adjustment your members may have had to do or not had to do to prepare drivers to be compliant with the rule. I'll, leave, I'll give this one to Jeff. All right. Yeah, thank you, Andy, uh, and Ian, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, for the most part, the the rule going into effect last year um, was a little bit of a, of a benign thing, and I'm, what I mean by that is because the original rule was supposed to be implemented in February of 2020. So most of the training providers, uh, certainly the members of the CBTA, of which we are one, um, and other high-quality or training organizations in the realm, we're already meeting ELDT requirements uh, to a large degree. Um, but when it did actually go into effect last February 7th, uh, it wasn't so much of a monumental change for those who are already operating in that space versus a, you know, a process change in terms of mm -hmm. the reporting and things of that nature. But mm -hmm. on a macro level, uh, for those who may not have been, uh, has, have had a, you know, a, as robust of a training program beforehand, then yes, February 7th of last year did require wholesale changes in, in their curriculum, all in a good way. In other words, the entire concept of ELDT, uh, one of the pillars of which was safety and standardization. So that's where the big shift had to be made in terms of the training providers and, uh, and basically how they run their business and their objective in training drivers. Mm. And like you mentioned, Jeff, perhaps some of the biggest switch was on the administrative side of what you were doing, making sure providers were applying and listed on the registry of approved providers and then providing the right documentation and process so the driver can prove at the driver licensing agency that they've completed this. How has that been in terms of an administrative burden or implementation of uh, what you're hearing from members? I can speak for, for us and core education. We, we operate in, in multiple states. So within, you know, different jurisdictions at the state level and local levels. But uh, we were, I think, pleasantly surprised. And I can think, speak for, with a lot of uh, training provider colleagues that the, the website, the training provider registry, which is uh, the, the base of, of the operation, so to speak, in terms of reporting ELDT, uh, went without a hitch. It went very well February 7th. It was literally, you know, a light switch in terms of that system becoming active. 
because everything from there uh, is, is as far as the skills testing and whatnot is predicated on that system working. So we applaud the FMCSA and their ability to have a, a standing website that was working. Um, but from that point forward, yes, the process changes. And Cora, we applauded the ELDT, the implementation, again, the standardization, the processes. So a multi-state operating organization such as ourselves, we have a standard process by which we report all of these results for our training activities. So that standardization was, was certainly welcomed. Mm. Yeah, I imagine, especially an operation that's across multiple jurisdictions, anything where you can have a little more um, ability to predict consistency makes your, your operation smoother and more efficient. Correct. And it was not an onerous burden in terms of what the requirements are for a training entity to be registered on the training provider registry and for submission of the applicable student data for training mm -hmm. in order of them for them to uh, sit for their skills test. Um, so, again, we, you know, we applaud the efforts that were made there as far as you know, streamlining of that process to make it as, as least burdensome as possible, if you want yeah. to use those terms. Sure. And then what about on the testing side? What are you hearing back from your students after they go through that process with the driver licensing agency? Are you noticing any difference in their experience in this, you know, ELDT implementation era versus pre-ELDT? I think that's as part of the, 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 the beauty, one of the positives of ELDT, because as far as the student facing, uh, there was really nothing for them. They would go to a qualified training provider. Uh, such as ourselves and many others, they would complete their training. It was the training provider that would enter the data and things of that nature. And then the student would go on to sit for their skills exam at a, at, at a DMV or a third party examiner. So there's really no difference to them per se in terms of what they may or may not have to do in order to test. Uh, the burden, so to speak, was put on the training providers to provide that information for the student. Yeah. One of the things that I'd like to mention here is sort of if we want to go back a little bit historically to, to lay some of the, the, the framework and why this all has taken shape the way that it has, CVTA was um, participated in this uh, in the ELDT advisory uh, mm -hmm. committee right? that that made this the final rule that ultimately took shape. And so given that this is a, an organization who's uh, the schools that belong to this organization have very high standards, minimum of 160 program hours, minimum of 30 hours hands-on behind the wheel. You know, that sensibility and the participation in the um, uh, the, the LTAC, they call it, um, really contributed, I think, to many of the elements that exist within entry-level driver training to begin with. So CBTA was really at the table um, in terms of uh, understanding the curriculum and all the necessary element, elements that need to be in, involved in a part of high quality training. And so the fact that we were at the table during that process has, has led itself smoothly into um, what's taken shape now and how yeah. uh, CBTA's members provide that training. Now, even as well as it's going out of the gate, anything new always has its bumps in the road, so to speak, um, where are we focused on looking ahead saying, okay, now we've got this basic ELDT rule implementation happening and we're learning some things and we know where we can improve the process. Has anything hit CVTA's radar in terms of whether it's things that providers can do, FMCSA could do, or even us on the licensing agency side to say, look, it's not, not that these things are broken, but now that we're in this new way of doing things, here are some opportunities for further refinement. Well, this is a 
very, very hot topic at CBTA. This is what uh, CBTA's members and board of directors have been focused on uh, since uh, since the rule was 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 uh, became federal law um, in February seventh of twenty twenty two. So uh, a lot to dig into there, Ian. Uh, what I will say <laughs> is that um, you know there have been some real challenges. One of the biggest issues that our members have have seen, and what what folks who are interested in that this have said, well, where's the enforcement, right? And that's typical, I think, mm. as you sort of stated with new new programs, new federal rules. But, you know, for everyone really concerned with safe training and, and all the safety benefits, you need enforcement. You absolutely need enforcement. And so mm-hmm. what, and to just be point blank, as of right now, if you go on the training provider registry, uh, the TPR website, you can't really tell uh, if folks have been removed that are bad actors. You can't, you know, you can't see what's going on. And so uh, CBTA's board of directors convened what we call the ELDT task force, and they have been focused on this and working essentially tirelessly, you know, for, for quite some time. And, and there's been a big ramp up certainly in the last uh, five or six months. So let me just briefly describe sort of the two areas of challenge, right? One is that, you know, is dealing with registrants that, um, you know, are not providing um, compliant training. There are material deficiencies mm-hmm. in their program. And that's, you know, we see our members report to us, oh my God, goodness, I looked at the TPR in my state and, um, or looked at the federal TPR and, and examined that in relation to my state. And I'm seeing that there are folks that are in my state with names like one day training, two day training, just yep. absolutely falling flagrantly afoul of uh, how the ELDT should be taught in the curriculum. You, you cannot do this in one day. You can't do it in, it, it's ridiculous. And so yeah. that's something that, you know, our, the ELDT task force at CBTA has been focused on stressing to the agency with repeated engagement. And we've been lucky to have some great conversations with the administrator and many others. And we can talk more about that in a bit. Um, we've had some new developments, which we'll share in a while. Uh, but uh, you know, these material deficiencies to the program are often flagrant and these folks need to be removed. Uh, the other side of that is that folks need to be licensed with their state. That's a, a requirement. And indeed, as many of the motor vehicle, uh, the, the sort of uh, STLAs that you know and love at AMVA um, yep. have requirements as well that they must notify the FMCSA if a state is not if, if a training provider is not licensed in their state to provide CMV instruction. So you have these two major categories, the uh, material deficiencies, which really require auditing and activity from uh, FMCSA to investigate. And then on the other side, you have uh, training providers that are unlicensed and really need to be removed from the TPR unless they are going to become licensed. And that is the one thing that we've had tons of conversations with various jurisdictions on uh, where they've said, you know, we've written to FMCSA because these states have a, uh, they must notify FMCSA that training providers doesn't meet the applicable state mm-hmm. requirements. That's federal law. And so they've been reaching out to uh, FMCSA's Office of Safety Programs. And, you know, there's not been a whole lot of results that people can see with any real clear transparency. So it may be the case yeah. that books have been removed, what have you. But so this, it's a two-pronged strategy. There's the FMCSA um, audit process, and then there's also the the state agencies that that report to FMCSA for unlicensed providers. 
And so you mentioned you've been having some good conversations with them about where they may want to go next with some of this enforcement. And by they, we're referring to FMCSA, because I think that's you know important for our listeners to understand that outside of that state licensing requirement, the enforcement and compliance role here around providers following the requirements of the rule is an FMCSA responsibility. I know sometimes in this world, the compliance responsibility, that line between FMCSA and a state driver licensing agency, you know, you almost need a, you know, a flow chart to keep track of who's doing what. In this case, it's, you know, definitely we're looking for FMCSA to provide us that, that guidance and enforcement. So you've been having some good conversations with them, any sense or anything you can share in terms of, you know, where we might, might be going and, you know, tightening those screws, so to speak. So again, we have been engaged. I mean, I'm looking at the the list on my on my screen here of of the meetings that we've had with yeah. uh, the administrator and with uh, all of the folks at the Office of Safety Programs, and it's just boom, 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 boom. Many, many engagements, uh, many you know submissions of formal comments, et cetera. So, but without mm-hmm. further ado, uh, we <laughs> spoke to the Office of Safety Programs yesterday, and they are making some real uh, changes. Let me sort of describe them quickly. Uh, you know, uh, they, I think the, probably the best way to say it is they've, they've heard CBTA's concerns and, and taken mm-hmm. them to heart. Uh, they informed us yesterday that they're essentially overhauling the entire enforcement regime later this summer and wow. will implement a new uh, updated, robust auditing and investigation process as well. Really important to our folks later this summer, the TPR website will be updated to create transparency around enforcement, right? So CBTA members and others in the public will finally be able to use the TPR website to see entities that have been removed or in this proposed removal status. Uh, Another critical element is that FMCSA is going to be checking the state licensure of a training provider before they list them on the TPR. That's absolutely huge. Uh, And uh, one of the things that, that we recommended Additionally, they're going to be ramping up the uh, the emergency removal power uh, when when necessary, and just staffing up just just a total overhaul and update of this uh, of this entire enforcement process in the name of the safety benefits that ELDT offers. Sure. Well, that, that that's exciting. So that and it's also impressive to uh, see it in the wor- in the world of uh, federal regulatory compliance to be moving so quickly. Indeed. And if I may, Ian, to add on to that, you know, one of the one of many discoveries last year is that the the ELDT rule has a lot of tentacles and some of the the negative impacts. So, yes, safety being paramount. And that is uh, the, the, the number one overarching theme in terms of why TPR compliance is so important. But one of the offshoots of every driver now being required, now being last February, being required to train with a certified training provider before they can sit for a skills test led to some unforeseen things, at least from, from, the, organi- from the organization. So within, uh, primarily within the pro- uh, consumer protection realm, there were folks that they realized they have to go to a qualified or excuse me, they had to go to a training entity listed on the TPR. And as Andy mentioned earlier, because there were some bad actors within that space and it proliferated since February of 2022, which brought us to where we are today, um, we and Cora as, as a training provider, there have been numerous students that have come to us after being 
for lack of better words, fleeced mm-hmm. by a bad actor in the space. Sure. And that's what I mean by the consumer protection angle in terms of, so it's not just drivers and safety and people needing to get to work within this fantastic career field. There was definitely part of the, of the, uh, the, the need for compliance uh, in, in terms of protecting those individuals. And, you know, and, and Anva certainly has you know, very robust data in terms of skills testing and delays and whatnot. Furthermore, those folks who did go to the bad actor and they, uh, they had their money taken. They didn't get the skills they needed. They further clogged the system in terms of their needs to get a test, uh, you know, yep. administered and, and things of that nature. So, you know, there's a whole confluence of factors and negative impact items that really brought us to the table. And uh, we certainly applaud the FMCSA and, and, the, and the administrator uh, in, in terms of really engaging with us. They heard us and uh, there has been a tremendous amount of traction, as That's Andy great. mentioned. Yeah, one, one of the ways that they're going to, as they were indicating, one of the ways I believe they intend to um, tackle some of the consumer protection issues is with this National Consumer Complaint Database, the NCCDB, which typically is used for, uh, you know, to report, um, uh, you know, uh, interact poor interactions with a moving company or mm-hmm. with uh, a motor carrier and that sort of thing. And, but the idea that, that, uh, training providers, uh, you know, and these subpar training providers can also be reported there by individuals who get fleeced, um, yeah. is the case. Uh, yeah. And, and that's absolutely goes to the heart of this because at the end of the day you want, I mean, what is this about? This is about, I mean, we operate, our, our members operate in the truck driver training space, right? The trainers, but at the end of the day, it's the students, it's the people who want to make this a career and have their lives, frankly, changed in many ways positively by this, um, by this career that, that are the ones that are going to be able to, um, enter into this space and not get dealt a bad hand, but will be hireable. Uh, and that's one of the things too, is the folks not, not just taking the money of these people, but, um, and providing them a subpar result, but so many folks that are dealing with bad actors out there now, uh, they're unhirable, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and because of the sort of curiosity of the, of the skills test, it is maybe the case that some people who have, you know, low level of training can squeak through and, and pass the skills test. We, we wish that wasn't the case, but it is um, just with the nature of, of, of a test being so broad and uniform. But uh, there are folks out there that, you know, get training from bad actors, somehow squeak their way through the skills test, and then they are yeah. absolutely unhirable. Yeah. And I imagine it also, you know, is an issue for the the image and reputation of of your industry. You know, not unlike the household good carriers that you you know are referencing with the with the hotline, uh, it only takes a few bad actors to be a blight on a larger community. Um, and by you know limiting or removing them from the system, you know it further you know strengthens the the quality and the reputation and the understanding of what the qualified, earnest, legitimate schools are are doing to prepare these drivers for a professional career. And that's a great call out there, Ian. Again, now that we've set kind of the foundation of ELDT and uh, some of the negative impacts, uh, unforeseen negative impacts, we can see that how this affects a broad range of of endeavors. Some folks may not ever re-enter this field because they were had a bad experience or were just outright, you know, victims of fraud. Yeah. And for an industry that desperately needs new drivers, that has an impact. I already mentioned the skills testing delays. 
for folks who are not qualified as far as being skills proficient, entering within that realm, uh, further uh, exacerbating any skills testing delays. The employers of which and carriers of which the CBTA is, is, is certainly proud to have very many members. Uh, they're the ones who need to fill the seats, their seats. Um, so they are impacted in that their hiring uh, needs and, and timelines are not being able to be met uh, from folks who, who are, are victims of bad actors within the within the TPR. That's right. One thing I want to mention, too, is you, you talked um, in a moment, you mentioned sort of removing these folks from the system um, for a host of reasons. I think that's important. Uh, obviously, there are the ethical reasons and the consumer protection reasons, the safety reasons. My goodness, mm-hmm. that's probably at the, the peak of it. But also, you know, we know that FMCSA has plans to use the data that's, uh, you know, that that is derived from the TPR uh, to understand you know, sort of the different safety outcomes for different, you know, uh, ways the training is recorded or different folks mm-hmm, read the mm-hmm. proficiency level. And so one of the things we've been, you know, really out in front saying is, hey, FMCSA, that's superb that you want to collect data from this. And boy, you sure should. But please make sure that you uh, clean it up and get rid of all of the noise before you can attempt to discern mm-hmm. any sort of safety signals or other information based on mm-hmm. that, um, based on that data. It's a great point. Great point. You know, so you've both mentioned the idea that, you know, the the testing, testing process and, you know, a standard test, you know, the school, in addition to preparing them to be an overall safe driver, is also preparing them for that testing process. And I think, as you know, and your members know, we've been briefing folks on the change that is now in progress in terms of modernizing portions of the the CDL test, particularly the skills test and the vehicle inspection process. Um, You know, we've spent a lot of time talking to our members, talking to those that are administering the test. Uh, Curious to hear your perspective, reaction, observation in terms of our effort there to, what we say, modernize the test and our efforts to really make sure that test is focusing on those safety critical skills that these drivers need? So I think broadly speaking, uh, CBTA has been pleased with this idea of the AMBA modernization test. One thing I will say is that with all of these uh, sort of large form uh, strategic moves in the space, the devil's in in the details. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and, and we often hear when we hear about uh, we, we don't all, always hear all that much good news sometimes at CBTA. Sometimes we hear about the folks that are having challenges and are, uh, and, and, are, and are considering this. And so I know that um, the pace at which it's occurring in some of the states is uh, causing a little bit of challenges and just a little bit of, uh, you know, folks in, that are the training providers there and especially the ones that are the third-party examiners having to uh, get up to speed quickly on this. Indeed, Great credit to AMVA. You all are always uh, at CBTA's conferences and sort of describing what's what's coming. But I think that, uh, you know, once it's at the state level, there are some uh, some conversations that are going on to just sort of uh, determine how best to implement it along a particular timeline. So when you say, you know, the pace has been a challenge, we've got some that are out front and trying to adopt quickly. There are some that are on a slower timeline. Is it that the pace is too fast, too slow, or the fact that everybody is at their own pace? <laughs> it's the it's probably the latter, the fact that everybody's at their own pace and and that there are, you know, just the mechanics of uh, 
sort of the, the various activities that need to be undertaken in order to be able to deliver that new test, the new footprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does the new footprint fit with the real estate that maybe a training mm-hmm. provider has in place, right? Um, maybe they look to their neighbor and say, well, why am I you know, doing this now and taking this activity if my neighbor across the state is not going to be doing that for a while, you know, across state lines is not mm. going to be doing that for a while. So I really do mean when I say the devil's in the details, I mean details. I mean, like literally, you know, restriping and how yep. that affects sort of real estate con, uh, considerations for the the land that that is there. Broadly speaking, I, I think there's been some great support for it because it's like this is supposed to be, you know, a test that is uh, reduces the footprint and a test that uh, that that. Uh, you know, is more efficient uh, without sacrificing any any of the safety benefits. And I think that is something that CBTA members have broadly appreciated and do appreciate and welcome. I think it's, you know, how that fits into the precise dynamics of certain existing locations is and, and uh, activities is what's relevant. Mm-hmm. Especially in what would be messiness of any transition where we have this hybrid where like you say especially you know i think about something like jeff's operation where you're across many states and you've got both tests going on some states that even have both tests available in the same state and so you're trying to operate you know almost have these two parallel tracks in this time of transition you know for you know it'll probably be a few years yeah that's a very good point Ian. and i was going to uh, mention that you know whether whether you are an entity that operates within an individual, you know, location or, or individual state or multi-state organization such as Ancora, um, you have to deal with with the pace of the transition. As you, as you mentioned, you know, we we certainly applaud the modernized skills test. It obviously was not an arbitrary endeavor in terms of the factors and components. <clears throat> excuse me, in the components made up of that test, it is science based. Uh, we've heard about it through um, through you all uh, attending our conferences and whatnot. And everybody's been excited about it ever since the inception of it. Mm-hmm. So now it's a matter of, you know, when are we going to see it? And some states, as you mentioned, are, are way ahead of the game. Uh, some states are taking a more measured approach. And I realize there's there's a whole host of factors into why that is, you know, sure. uh, being able just to, just to flip the script, so to speak, uh, on a skills test has a lot of different impact items to be considered. Um, we certainly hope that at some point that it will be standard everywhere, and we realize that that will be coming. Uh, one of the challenges for us being a multi-state organization is that, you know, our curriculum, uh, although it obviously meets ELDT requirements and, 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 and beyond, uh, there are adjustments that may have to be made for a state that is, you know, more at the forefront as far as transitioning mm-hmm. over to that skills, modernized skills test versus others that, are, that may be uh, lagging a little bit more behind. But... I think that's just the price of doing business and that's what happens in terms of transitions. I think for us, it's a matter of focusing on the fact that this is a wonderful uh, science-based change in our industry. It's just that uh, as with most things, we wish things could happen a little bit you know, sooner rather than later in terms of, of the, of the States, you know, adopting that skills test. So we can all literally be on the same page in terms of curriculum and skills training. Yeah. Yeah. But like you say, and like Andrew said, those devils in the details, whether it's changing the, the real estate, restriping, training the examiners, making sure you have enough examiners. Uh, but, you know, 
nevertheless, it's, it's progress going forward. So guys, we've been chatting for a while. We've only talked about two topics, but I know at CVTA, you've got some other key priorities uh, that, that you're working on. And I know our members would love to hear kind of what else is on your, your top hit list that CVTA is really focused on these days. What, what else can you share with us that, you know, is keeping you all busy, whether it is, you know, in the, that DC hub or even, you know, outside in the broader national space? Well, one thing I will mention quickly, uh, and I don't know how much interaction your folks necessarily have with with this process, but one is the challenges that face uh, these uh, professional truck driver training schools with respect to uh, some of the funding streams that that are available through the federal government. One example mm. would be workforce investment funding. Um, absolutely critical to be able to give unemployed and underemployed folks the ability to uh, you know, to have resources to, to take on, um, to take on the training. And one of the beauties of workforce investment boards is that they, although they're federally funded, uh, they exist in localities and can make decisions about what to fund in terms of the various, uh, opportunities that exist in that locality, in that region, whether it be nursing or, uh, mm -hmm. any other sort of, um, uh, programs, but we find that sometimes uh, truck driver training programs fall off of the uh, in-demand list of occupations, which is a curiosity based on the fact that so many uh, of these trucking companies are national organizations and they may have a terminal uh, or even more than that in a particular uh, locality, but they don't, they're not necessarily headquartered in that locality. Mm. So because of the vagaries of that analysis process of workforce investing, uh, you see people saying, uh, you know, these, these local boards saying, well, you know, truck driving isn't an in, in demand, uh, occupation in this, uh, in this jurisdiction. It's like, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> it really is. There's tens of thousands of truck drivers needed every day. I mean, there are, yeah. you know, and you know, Jeff, maybe you can speak to this. I mean, there are, and, and our motor carriers can certainly speak to this, that there are empty trucks sitting idle, uh, mm. all over this country that would be filled by folks who are very keen and interested to, um, to, to gain the many benefits of this career. I'll use one example, you know, median driver wages, uh, uh, in this sector are somewhere between 55,000 and $85,000. Right. And so I was in uh, a state recently and was there just talking to them about the importance of funding this truck driver training, uh, and why it's so critical to get, to get folks great jobs. And, you know, there were a lot of wide eyes in the room and they really didn't understand how much money you could make as an entry level truck driver. And it just seems short sighted and, uh, you know, erroneous to, to not be including those in those those funding streams. Jeff, I don't yeah. know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. Uh, Ian. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, another thing that, we, that we've always been focused on is, is skills testing delays and how can we uh, minimize those. I've already mentioned some of the, the negative impact elements of that, meaning folks who uh, may not be proficient, um, you know, clogging the system. Um, but we're always advocating for uh, as, as wide as possible in terms of third party testing that states will, will allow to help alleviate that. So, you know, we, we have an interesting dynamic here, um, but I think CVTA's basic approach is I think of it as as almost like a three-legged stool. You have the skills testing delays. That's on the that's on the post training side. That needs to be 
a, a very streamlined and as 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 least burdensome process as possible so that folks can get to work. ELDT, that's another leg of the of the stool. That's the training itself. That we've already mentioned has to be compliant. It has to be within the spirit of ELDT, but not just within the spirit, but be compliant too, so that folks can, can receive high quality training. The other leg of the stool is what Andy just mentioned, and that's the funding. Um, so we're always advocating, uh, you know, for, for robust WIOA appropriations, uh, anything that can uh, lo- loosen the, the purse string, so to speak, as far as, you know, whether it be VA, WIOA, et cetera, just under the general term of, of, of government funding. Mm-hmm. So it's those three legs of the stool that all have to exist. If your training is excellent, the spec, you know, the, 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 the realm of training, and the testing is excellent, but the, we're lacking on the the incoming. In other words, the funding, the, the, the stool is not going to stand. Likewise, if there's plenty of training and there's plenty of good funding, and then the skills testing delays is causing folks not to be able to get to work timely, well, that part of the stool is swept out from underneath it, and it doesn't stand there also. So we have to address those all of the three items. It's the incoming, which we'll just generally categorize as funding, the training itself, which we spoke highly about, and then the post-training activities, which primarily is skills testing. Because once that is completed, then the, the new CDL holder is off to the races in terms of right. being one person that can fill the 78,000 current uh, driver needs that the industry has. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Another thing I want to mention that, you know, in addition to being, uh, you know, really uh considering safety focused high quality training one of the other things that cbta is very concerned with is just creating efficiency where we can in this system right and jeff mentioned skills testing delays but i want to note uh, a recent bill that was introduced in the house in the license act i mean that's this is bipartisan legislation that would reduce these administrative barriers uh, to, to, to CLP knowledge exams by allowing them to be administered by third-party examiners. Okay, that's an important one. Uh, and that it, it is the case that that is uh, you know, presently al- sort of allowed by a read of the existing rule, uh, mm-hmm. but codifying that and making that, uh, uh, moving that process along more smoothly, I think is, is, is key to that. Another one is that um, that bill would uh, uh, as well expand access to CDL skills testing by allowing skills tests to be administered by um, an applicant regardless of their state of residence, right? And so Mm -hmm. they could move between states to get that skills test. And so some of those uh, skills testing delays could be um, obviated by that. So whether it's having third-party examiners administer the CLP CLP test or whether it be... um, you know, having folks be able to to take a skills test regardless of the, regardless of the state they were trained in, both of those things are optimizations. Yeah, you know, and I think and the key there is you know providing more options to reach the optimization because you know as you know not just like with the tests, the new tests, different states at a different pace. You know, the the pace at which they're getting them through um, applicants through skill testing is you know, across the board as, as well. You know, we know there are some states that have delays. There are many states that have no delays, right? It's not a one size fits all in in, in any case. Um, and no doubt, the more students that are going through qualified training schools receiving that ELDT education, 
they're more likely to pass on their first time, which will also, you know, get some of that clog out of the system, just like those that, you know, should have been in in the first place because they were, their money was stolen and uh, really weren't prepared for the test to begin with. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, as we as we start to wrap up, um, I have uh, really good research on the team. And so I have to ask you, Andrew, about something not necessarily related directly to CVTA, but because I get good research, I have to ask you about the Virginia Coalition. It's true. Yes. That Well, I whatever do you mean, Ian? Jeff, did you set him up to this? <laughs> no, I, I plead the fifth. Yeah. So uh, I, I was a, I am a musician. I was a professional musician for uh, many years and still have the great pleasure of doing that a couple of times uh, a year. And so we'll, we, we have a big show coming up this summer. Uh, you know, that's uh, we're on a, a, a bill with of a revolution and, and John Mayer and some other people. We're in the tiny teensy tiny fine print at the bottom of that, but that'll be in ocean city, Maryland. And, um, late September. But it, yeah, I was, a, I was a touring musician for, uh, for, you know, over 10 years and it was yeah. an absolutely wonderful thing to do. And absolutely thrilled that I still get to do it here and there. What are your instruments? Uh, well, I mean, how good is your research, Ian, if you're asking me that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're, I know you're primarily playing, you know, guitar and your lead vocals in your rock band, but as a professional musician and having a, a son who is at the start of that journey, I know right. it never stops with the, the one instrument. Uh, you have a son who is at the beginning of a journey to be a professional musician. Yeah, he is. He just graduated high school last week and in the fall, he'll be starting at the Berkeley college of music. See, that's, Boston. that's a much better way to do that. I can promise you. I, when you said he's going to be a professional musician, when you said he's going to be a professional musician, I was going to say I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, but if he's if he's going to Berkeley, then then he's in good hands. That's that's great. I was more like uh, me and a bunch of my really good friends from high school started a band and yeah. found ourselves years later in in tour buses and doing the whole thing. But it's oh, you know neat. one of the fun things about that is you know um, being passionate about something like music really transfers well towards being passionate about a, a career like this, like meeting the members, knowing the members at CVTA, you really want to work hard for them. And, uh, you know, it's something that I care about deeply. So it's, uh, yeah. you know, it's fun to get on stage and, and present and, um, at, at these conferences and, and really, uh, have demonstrate that passion in a, in a bit of a different way. Sure. And, and, and being a CVTA board member and a, and a member of school, not that we could impact Andy's personal life in any way, but we got we have full support in his uh, endeavors in, in that space because uh, it makes him that much more of an effective executive director for the yeah. association, for sure. So is there a CVTA meeting in September in Ocean City? There is there is not. Uh, no, but there's a great CVTA fall conference um, in Florida in November. You're welcome to come there, Ian. We'd love to host you. Only if I could see you play in Ocean City first. Maybe we okay. can get it all done in the fall. Sure. That's awesome. All right. Well, Andrew, Jeff, thanks for spending some time with us today. Learn a little bit more about CVTA, your members, how you're tackling these shared priorities, and looking forward to continue working together as, as we move forward in all these spaces. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Ian. Uh, you know, longstanding, very warm substantive relationship between CVTA and AMBA. And we just cannot thank uh, that organization of which you uh, belong enough uh, for their partnership, very like-minded organizations in terms of just safe operators on the public highways. And we're, they're, they're certainly, that is not a, a subject up to debate. 
So yes. we really appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and, and hosting us today. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff, for saying that. I appreciate it. Thank you all for listening this week. As always, thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.